Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grain traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the market report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by the farm chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two. So let's start with Andrew Dewing for this week's market report. And don't forget, you can always check current market prices on the homepage of our website, dewinggrain.co.uk. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market Report week commencing 15th of Jan 2024. Well, it's Norfolk dinner week, everybody from the grain trade. Isn't that exciting? And I hope most of you are going to come across there because the whole point of having a dinner or having bits where you meet each other is it gives you an opportunity to meet your opposition, find out that they're human, got one head only, and you can look for common ground and you can look for ways to work together. Because in my experience, in the end, every time I've worked with someone else, both companies make a bit more money than if they fight each other all the time. And I appreciate there's the old, you know, he's taken that off my farmer, I always deal with him and he's nicked by paying up. There's always going to be that, and we're always going to fight each other a bit on, on the street, if you like. But the reality of the bigger things that you do in your trade, the time you get the opportunity to meet people who you can have some common ground with, is at a function where you eyeball each other. So those of you that avoid dinners and avoid bosses and avoid meeting anybody and you hide behind your phone or whatever you do, every now and again, unless you've got a terrible skin condition or something or you've got the flu, by all means, be missing for that, but turn up and actually, you know, look and believe that, in fact, working together is a better thing. So there's the peace and love message from Doing Grain to start, that your mood's ready for coming to cold old Norfolk on Thursday night. A couple of notes on that. The bar is open at 6pm if you want to buy cheaper beer than the local pubs, because we've, we've got some sponsored beer from um, our local friends, Adams and Howling, Bannums and ourselves have, have supplied some beer, which we get some money back off the bar. One of the bars, there's two bars in the forum, it's a public space and they have to set up a bar for us. And we've had to go in there because the previous venue has been having all sorts of work done for it for the next 12 months. So in the forum, there is two bars. One bar is cash only. The other one can take cards. But just bear that in mind. You're going to need to bring some cash anyway because we try and raise a little bit of money for charity. So you have to bring at least one £10 note to write your name on in case you, you win the pot. And then there's a raffle. So cash is very useful. We can take cards, I believe, on the raffle. I might be wrong on that. But just bring some cash along. Start flashing it about. It's a good experience for you if you're young. Other notes before I run on about prices. No, I'll do prices first, shall I? Yeah. Let's get straight into the market. So old seed rape, 3.45 for Jan and 3.50 for harvest. It is boring. It is like stuck. Never seems to want to go up. It's below cost of production. There's a whole lot of people who are dropping that as a subject. It is pointless competing with people who can kill flea beetle in their, in their growing process in foreign countries. I'm afraid oilseed rape is on its backside and I can't see it recovering unless something really radical happens. Certainly the price is below cost of production when you get the yields that we are actually experiencing. So that's that one. On a, let's continue to be bored note, a feed barley is still worth 150. That has been the worst market this year. I guess it's all of the rejected malting barley from the continent that's just swamped the European demand. Therefore, it's never been good ever since harvest. You can't make 
a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Too much feed barley means everybody's got to sell it and get rid of the damn stuff. So £150 a tonne, I don't think it's going to go up. I think it's just going to be the, you know, Cinderella didn't get to the ball on this occasion. Malting barley is, is really boring as well at the start of the season. This is going to be really upbeat, isn't it, this, this one? It's just not happening, you know. I think there's stuff to be traded. It's just the first few days of Jan. Molsters are behind on deliveries. So there's a little bit of pressure on people wanting to get the stuff moved. And there's, you know, oh, the germination's gone wrong. It's your fault from farmers, which is great. That's a great conversation, as you know. So the reality is there is a few bits finally beginning to move, which is great. And we've just had a, a big slug go of some of our craft winter malting barley seamlessly going in. So um, that's, that's always nice to clear a silo or two. But the market, I, I can't see it doing much. I mean, round figures, 240x, something like that, you know, if you've got old crop. New crop, this is the big thing. There's lots and lots to talk about the size of the spring barley crop because of the terrible autumn we've had. And clearly by seed sales, spring barley's gone, you know, been sold out and then people are finding ways of having, dressing up their own barley to get some seed. Yeah, I, this, 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 it's interesting. Three dry days we've had this week. We're now on the fourth. Very cold and very low humidity and the moisture seems to have disappeared. So, all right, boys land in North Norfolk, people can get on a bit quicker than other people. But we have got sugar beet coming out the ground and wheat going in. And we've got wheat going in in some heavier lands in, in South Norfolk as well. So this is actually really good news. We might actually achieve an 11 million tonne wheat crop at this rate. So some of the spring barley acreage is diminishing a bit as we finally get a crack at doing it. And we've got another few more days of dry weather ahead. So I do think January planted wheat, because the seed has been bought and is sitting in the barn, I do think there's a fair amount of activity going to reduce the amount of spring barley acreage and increase wheat up a little bit. Clearly there's a problem with wheat for next year, but this is an unexpected opportunity for some wheat planting, which is kind of good news. We need a bigger crop as poor grain merchants, because without it, we haven't got a job. 20% of the spuds are apparently still in the ground. They're not lifting, they're not happening, but the sugar beet are coming out, as I said. So that's that interesting aspect takes on to new crop. So do you trade new crop spring malting barley when you haven't even drilled it yet? Possibly some of the premiums were for spring barley, you know, £25 over the Nov futures price, which is a little bit off that at the moment. It's just no one's really wanting to talk about it. I think we could do with a, if you want the price to go up, a weather scare. But if you want to actually plant your barley, you could do without a weather scare. So, you know, the crunch of this year in terms of opportunity for upward price movement, I think comes, as usual, March, April, May, with how is the spring in America? How is the spring on their corn crop? How is the spring in all of Europe? Obviously, the Northern Hemisphere is the biggest producer. So there's been rain in South America. The crop is a bit bigger down there recently so it's bearish everything's been really really you know glum since before christmas not harvest and as i said on the podcast before we had a rally in uh, the christmas period on very thin trade that's evaporated and we're now hitting we hit contract lows last night on november feed wheat we hit contract lows on may feed wheat which is interesting of all the things in this market that i think is obvious I believe, and I'm, I'm happy to say this out loud, and I'm, I may well be proved wrong and all the rest of it, the May-London wheat futures contract is overpriced. It doesn't fit with everything else in the market. We're, we can't export parity with, with the continent if we wanted to. If you know some of the northern buyers of wheat have farmers refusing to sell it still, they can buy a boat pretty well 
close to the price we've got here and just get a big tonnage covered fairly quickly. That's if they're not buying corn, which is even cheaper. And I believe you'll find there is some corn going into the north of England now. So with that in mind, in East Anglia, the delivered price is trading at the same as the futures price for May. If you think about that, when it gets to May or June or July, those stores have to be emptied. And that means that the price of it has to have a haulage rate in order to get it out, as well as a margin, one would hope. And you have to pay for it up front, so you've got finance against you. And you have to pay rent if you don't move it within 14 days. The point being, it has to correct itself. Now, either the feed wheat price is going to increase. I don't know, is it? Yeah, the the feed wheat price relative to futures will increase. In the end, something has to give. And if there's no upside because we're not competitive to export it and we've got surplus, the only hopes are new crop prices are going to go up which is what we're predicting since the last few weeks we've said that the spread between May London 24 and Nov new crop 24 is going to go out to 20 pounds a ton it's gone out to 14 it's moving in the direction and it's not because I'm talking about it it's because it's got to happen we've got to carry a million and a half tons of wheat from one year to the next and I think we can comfortably carry 800,000 because we've proven that um, on-farm, in-stores, whatever. But this coming season, it's got to be a big carry. And the price at the moment doesn't stack up. But £14 between the two doesn't stack up. And to give you values at this moment in time to prove the point, I'll come back to the prices just to run through them. But if I was bidding you for July feed wheat, I'd aggressively pay 188x, which is aggressive. And if you were selling it for November, you'd make 194x as a farmer. £6 a tonne. £6 a tonne does not cover the cost of the finance alone, let alone the misery of having one year to the next. It's got to go higher than that for it genuinely to be a victory, you know, for you to win. So that's what I think is going to happen. The two will pull out further. Anyway, enough of that. Be aware that I think May London wheat futures are too high and something's got to give. And I don't think it will be the ex-farm price much more because that will drift down a bit, but not as much as the futures does. Anyway, to finish off on wheat, the prices for wheat, if you were selling it for Feb, 175. If you're selling it for May, 181. Somewhere between, you know, March and April is somewhere between those two prices. June, we'll aggressively pay 84, which at the moment doesn't stack up, but I believe the premium for delivered wheat over the futures will go up and my hedge is on the futures and if you don't understand what I'm talking about you should have listened to my podcast in the past anyway 184 for June 188 for July new crop at the moment the futures are trading at 205 which is gonna make it's not 15 pounds under for new crop this year it's probably 12 pounds under 11 pounds under somewhere like like that so it 194x for uh, November is roughly the value at the moment. Is new crop going to go down significantly? It's going to depend on the weather. I think it will be dragged down with this old crop bearishness, but I also think it won't take much of a weather scare to get all of the, the funds and the speculators to come in and buy the shite out of it in the spring. So I can't tell you what the weather event is going to be. They all pin their hats on, but the downside is becoming very limited. And if you're a trader trying to make money out of speculation and you're you're selling into something that can't go down very much because it's below the cost of production in lots of cases, then you wait for the moment when you get the chance to buy it and scare everybody that it's going to go up and then you make some money. Anyway, so there's an optimistic 
Let's not criticise speculators because sometimes they help the price. I think that covers just about everything on the market. Uh, Milling wheat, £70 premium round figures. Yep, I'm afraid I think old crop wheat still goes down until it finds its happy place, and that isn't yet. And the happy place is being saved by being bought into new crop. So someone like me can buy it, put it in store, cover the cost of the rent, cover the cost of the finance, and then it's got a home to go to. At the moment, we're not going to export it, and there is a surplus. So if you're burying your head in the sand on this, farmers, I'm afraid the one sure thing is old crop wheat for the next four weeks is under immense pressure. A bit of housekeeping, podcast walk, 29th, 2pm, what three words, location to drive your car to is bedrock, slant, tank, and we're going to walk around the previously flooded sort of Hassingham to Lingwood, Cantley, yeah, that sort of, if you know that, well, no one knows where that is, it's the middle of nowhere, anyway, that's where we're walking, bring your boots probably, and the farm chat this week is very technical, Ian Douglas is the guy who went to uni to study to be a planning officer, so it kind of sets the scene, doesn't it? But if you're looking at solar as a farmer, you've got every bit of detail you want in this conversation. And more importantly, you know, you've got to kind of read into the dynamic of the government has priorities. And at the moment, as we know, food isn't mentioned pretty well until it's a crisis when then it'll be mentioned a lot and they'll pretend they care. I think the issue is, yeah, it's the priority of government is going to be green energy and it trumps agriculture and at the, theoretically these solar farms are not going to go on good agricultural land however the heat is on more in getting to our, our target of green energy so i think some of the planners will be like knocked on the head and say sorry mate we're going to shove a quick 15,000 acres down a solar or something so that's another bit of land use which we we're trying to highlight the dynamic of it in advance of the crisis that's coming on food Anyway, with that, have a fantastic week and I look forward to seeing several of you at the Norfolk dinner where we're all going to love each other and have a great time. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Attention all farmers and consumers. It's time to chuck on the wellies and join us for our podcast walk around our beautiful Norfolk countryside. Our walks are a great way to network, share insights and just have a good old yarn. As an added bonus, there is normally a nice pub at the end with the opportunity for a beer or coffee. To stay up to date with our upcoming walks, head over to our Instagram page or check the news section on our website so that you don't miss out. Now, let's head back to the farm chat. Right, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about solar farms and planning. And I've got someone with me who I know fairly well. But we often have a little chat down the pub about what's going on in the solar world and what land is being taken up. I've got a gentleman called Ian Douglas with me. Hello, Ian. Ben, hello. Thanks for having me here. It's all right. Good to see you. Give us a bit of background about you and what you do. Yeah. Okay, well, so I'm a town planner by trade, so that actually means you can go to university and get a degree and and a qualification in that. So what planners will tend to do once they've qualified is they'll either go into working in practice in local government or in consultancy or for central government so effectively the broad split of you know the profession and how it operates I have been working in consultancy for 
just shy of 30 years now. Feels like a very long time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, over that time, I've I worked for a number of consultancies representing clients and developers in, in various sectors in the development field. So that could be residential, commercial development, water infrastructure, wastewater infrastructure. And then more recently, I've been working for the last sort of five, six, seven years in renewable energy projects and more recently in very large scale solar projects. So, and that's sort of advising clients and helping them take them through the planning application process of which are a number of routes you can take. Sorry, just coming back on that. So, Mm. yeah, so someone will say, here's a parcel of land I'm looking to do, or a company will say to you, they'll instruct you, won't they? We want to do this bit of solar here and then they bring you in to take it to the next stage is that yeah exactly from a solar perspective a lot of the clients and developers we work for will i suppose we're getting into a bit of the detail here but they will the key thing for them is to have a grid connection signed up with the national grid and once they've got that they will then look to put land around it for their solar project and they tend to do that. That's not something that we, you know, as, as planning consultants do, but they will broadly have the, the sort of the principles of the project pulled together. But they, what they will do is come to us to look at particular land parcels to see whether they're appropriate for development of solar from a, an environmental or planning policy perspective. So we do do come in quite often at the early stages of looking at forming up the solar scheme, but that grid connection is the key thing for them if they've got that then that's that's the starting point they tend to do the you know the direct discussions with landowners or employ land agents to to talk to the landowners so we then sort of form part of a a consultancy team to take it through the the planning process there's two ways very briefly not wishing to bore you ben or the (laughs) list or or your listeners about about the planning process there's effectively sort of two avenues really for solar the avenue you take depends on the scale of the scheme. So okay. solar projects that are under 50 megawatts in scale or in terms of the, you know, the, the energy output of them are dealt with under what we call the Town and Country Planning Act 1990, which is where the planning application is submitted to the local planning authority, the district or borough council or unitary authority. Distinction here is actually county councils don't deal with solar applications. They've dealt with... A solar scheme is not a county matter, but that's just that's just oh, okay. the way that the applications are, or the planning system works. So it's districts or, or boroughs under 50 megawatts, and the process there is effectively that you make a planning application to that authority. The planning officer takes the application. They take it through a consultation process. The planning officer writes a recommendation as to whether the application should be approved. Right. The planning application goes to the planning committee which is made up of the 13 or 14 often elected members of the council and the makeup of that committee will be representative of the political makeup of that council itself as well and then the actual decision on the planning application is made by that committee. There are some cases where very small solar schemes can be approved under what they call delegated authority so where for example, the project itself has no objections and it's in accordance with policy, then it doesn't have to necessarily go to committee. So, oh, that you just know, go through? To be a, you know, a report written up on it. And as part of the process, what's important to understand is then the, the policies and the matters that the planning officer and the council have to wrestle with in terms of whether to approve or refuse the solar scheme. 
So at this level, the system under the Town and Country Planning Act, it's what we call plan-led. So there's a local plan put in place by each local authority, which has policies, and it also allocates land for development. But solar projects don't tend to be allocated in these local plans. take a very long time to approve and adopt. Right. And the issue around solar really is that if you've got a grid connection, you need to move fairly quickly on it and the two processes just don't marry up. Local plans tend to allocate residential and commercial development and constraints around urban areas and settlements and that sort of thing. A 50 megawatt system, roughly how many acres? I think we, I mean, sorry, if I can talk in hectares, it's about 0.8 to 1.6 hectares per megawatt. So what's that? That's somewhere between 50 and 70 hectares. Oh, yeah. For a fifty, a fifty megawatt scheme. Okay. Now you could you, you could apply that to. You know, come on to talk about the large scale stuff in in a moment. But yeah. I think in terms of that process that that application is going through, what the planning authority has to consider, and I think again it's probably just worth making the point that government and planning policies don't specifically direct solar development to any particular locations they don't allocate land for it okay the way that the process tends to work is most of those local plans will have a relatively supportive policy for renewable energy projects within local authorities area generally if those plans are up to date but they will then set out a series of tests within that policy that you know the solar farm needs to meet as in impacts on the landscape, impacts on heritage assets, can it be accessed properly? Okay. And also particularly, and I know we're going to come on to talk about it, does it have a, a major impact on best and most versatile agricultural land? So and I think we'll talk about the BMV thing a bit as we, as we get into this a bit further. So what the planning authority then need to do, and the planning officer does this, is effectively takes all of those policies and the evidence and the information that the applicant has submitted which is what we you know I tend to coordinate the production of so and that might be an environmental impact assessment for example that has to assess all the impacts on ecology on on landscape the views the impacts on local residents the traffic impacts the noise the you know what's okay. going to happen during yeah. construction the agricultural land sort of major issue as well that's emerging is sort of the cumulative impacts of development so if there were three or four solar farms in a, in the locality or in, or even in the wider locale of that particular site then those impacts need to be taken into account as part of the, your application and the planning officer will then take that and balance and try and weigh up the, the issues based on other consultation responses they've had right from Natural England, the, you know, the ecology body or the heritage body or the highways authority, or if there are flood risk issues. All these matters are sort of going into the mix. Right. And the planning officer then will make a recommendation based on all of the negatives and positives. I think probably the issue in terms of the generation of renewable energy has quite a lot of weight in the process at the moment. From Yeah, well, security uh, <coughs> of energy and... Yeah. yeah, exactly. So the officer will make, you know, will weigh up these, make their recommendation, then put it to the planning committee. Now, the planning committee will then, they generally make decisions 
and go with the officer's recommendation, but sometimes they don't, and that might depend on whether local communities have made a lot of objections and there's a lot of you know, pressure on those elected members, mm. for example, to perhaps make a vote against, whereas in another location they may have voted for it. But what's also worth saying, so that, I mean, that's sort of looking at it from a local perspective. From a, a national perspective, there's, under the Town and Country Planning Act, there's the National Planning Policy Framework, which is a national planning policy under which all those local policies should accord. The, you know, they set out those similar tests for policies and applications in terms of the environmental impacts and be it best and most versatile, you know, agricultural land. But interestingly, that national policy is sort of relatively supportive of renewable energy in, in that it states that projects for renewable energy do not need to effectively provide a justification for coming forward. They do in terms of all the impact, yeah, but, but in terms of the, the actual need, that's sort of well established whereas there are a lot of quite a lot of you know development projects that come forward where you would have to establish well why is there a need for this okay but that sort of written out of the of of the process which makes sense isn't it you know here we are you know we know about energy markets we know the you know the government wants the uk to be sustainable and hence on energy so solar comes in and as you say yes they'll have a policy where they'll say look actually we need this, but now it needs to be decided, the pros and cons in more detail. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, and, you know, I mean, I don't have any, you know, numbers to hand, but there are probably, you know, the issue with the solar industry was that there was a quite a surge of applications back in the sort of 2013, 2012, 2013, 14, 15, because there were subsidies. It was a subsidised industry for a period of time, and then it fell away. Okay. And as it's become more viable without subsidy, and I think the materials are, you you know more cost effective then you know it's really come back in a big way and what's also happened is it's sort of a you know from a an energy security perspective the move to net zero 2050 oh, yeah. these other technologies are now forming part of that government's energy security strategy so with solar for example the energy security strategy is seeking 70 gigawatts of solar by 2035 Right. Now, at the moment in the UK, we generate 15. That is quite an uptick in production. And, you know, look, whether that's achievable or not remains to be seen. But the, the objective's been set. Yeah. In the mix with that is also offshore wind. Oh, OK. So that's not just solar. So it's not just solar. Right. There's offshore wind, there's nuclear, and there's sort of a mix. And, and we know that government recently has granted some licences for some more offshore <laughs> offshore drilling and that sort of thing. But so I think there is, I think the, you know, we all know that the the net zero sort of 2050 thing is a cross-party consensus. You know, there's a, yeah. there's a consensus on yeah. it. How we get to it, you know, we may see governments trying to get there in different ways and, and we know that there have been some bits of, of that net zero policy that have been rolled rolled back on recently, it's probably more to do with electric cars and that sort of thing. But yeah. quite opportunely that we're, we're sort of speaking at this moment. Last week, the, the national energy policies, so I talked about the national planning policy framework and that's sort of related to that 50 megawatt scale solar scheme but it when you get over 50 megawatts you move into a different planning regime and there are different although really a lot of the tests as to whether these 
scheme should be approved are very similar in terms of the environmental issues and impacts on BMV, for example, but there is a different regime and there are different national policy statements. Now, this is under the 2008 Planning Act, which was brought in really to deal with major infrastructure projects like solar, new airports and roads and other technologies. It was sort of stimulated by the lengthy Heathrow uh, Terminal 5, you know, sort of process. So I think in trying, you know, government at that point in 2008 in terms of trying maybe to take more of the sort of the localised issues and maybe cross back, because a lot of these schemes are cross-boundary, they are at a national scale, they do affect, you know, regionally and nationally, they looked at this sort of different regime. And what that effectively does, if your scheme's over 50 megawatts, you then need to submit that application to it's effectively approved by the secretary or refused by the secretary of state but it goes to the planning inspectorate right which is a national planning body okay and they will you know you make your application and you 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 submit it to them they effectively you know for the sake of the right terminology they administer the processing of the application and it goes through a public examination Okay, so the public can still have an input on a project that has gone to the national level. Yeah, yeah. Right. and we can, we can sort of come on to the consultation requirements on that, which are quite stringent and actually one of the main key tests, sort of legal tests of a, under the 2008 Act. So under the 2008 Act, your application is called a Development Consent Order Application, so we'll call that a DCO. So under the DCO process, one of the sort of statutory tests is that you've properly consulted with local communities right. as part of that process and that'll be a major sort of aspect of the planning inspectorate accepting your application for examination so you know there's a number of sort right. of steps to work through but yeah so what happens with that that application that type of application is that the planning inspectorate accept it you know once it's in the system and they start processing you consult on it and then it is examined by what's termed an examining authority which is a number of government planning inspectors okay or it could be one or it, or it could be a number depending on the scale of it so some of the big solar schemes that I've been involved in there were often two planning inspectors when you say big Ian I mean how big are those solar schemes what's that yeah so I mean they're obviously over 50 but they probably they tend to I mean, a developer did announce the application hasn't gone in, but something went public on a one gigawatt scheme a month or so ago. That application isn't in, but a lot of the applications that are in in the system at the moment are sort of between 300 to 600 megawatts. There is one quite large scheme around Oxford that's eight about 820 megawatts schemes. So, yeah, there are obviously some big schemes in there, but I think, you know, the net zero policy, the move to 70 gigawatt. I mean, we can come on to it as well, because, you know, a lot of these applications are still in the decision-making process. Right. Um, and I think 2024 is going to be a very interesting year for there will be a number of decisions made by the Secretary of State throughout 2024, which will start to see some of the issues that have been raised around solar, tr- you know, truly tested. But so just coming back to that, the opportune moment, the, the policy <laughs> relating effectively renewable energy was the new policy was published last Wednesday. Right. They've been out for consultation for two years. (laughs) Yeah, which has been frustrating for the industry. But we sort of known that solar was going to be clearly referenced and supported in these policies, subject to the the relevant tests you've got to go through. Yeah. Because prior to 
that adoption of that policy last week. Solar had very little mention in these national policy statements because if you're going back to 2008, solar wasn't a particularly, you know... Yeah, it wasn't really cost-effective or... Yeah, it wasn't really being done on a particularly big scale. Yeah. Whilst there were, you know, specific policies for highway schemes and, you know, waste to energy and that sort of thing, solar wasn't really in there. So prior to, you know, that policy coming in you know, the examining authorities were having to do to consider these large-scale solar schemes was to effectively determine them on whether the impacts were acceptable or not, as opposed to having that real sort of policy emphasis and policy support. So, I mean, I think it's a positive thing in the sense that it gives a bit clearer direction to decision-makers and to the industry, but it still doesn't mean you don't have to go through a very sort of stringent application process and meet those tests because that policy still says you, if you have unacceptable impacts on local communities, if you have unacceptable impacts on, you know, protected sites, if you have unacceptable impacts on, you know, best and most versatile agricultural land, then they can weigh against the, you know, the scheme being, you know, being approved. Okay. So, yeah, that's the sort of... <laughs> That's probably enough said because, yeah, hopefully the listeners won't be falling asleep. But, you know, in terms of the process, it's quite complex, but it might just be worth saying that so far under that 2008 Act, in terms of large-scale solar, I believe we've only got four schemes that have been approved. None are actually operational. So the first one that was approved in about 2018, the Cleve Hill solar scheme, which is down in Kent, was is I believe only just sort of really under construction now. Okay. And then the most recent decision we've had on a solar scheme was one in Essex, the Longfield solar scheme back in March of this year. You know, there aren't a huge amount of the large scale ones actually approved and operational yet. But there are enough in the pipeline. Yeah, there are quite a few that are submitted and, and in the process. Um, okay. So so thinking about these large-scale schemes, or think about any scheme, as you are... So just, I'm trying to get my memory. So it's, a, it's roughly one hectare is a megawatt. Is that right? It was about one... I've got the numbers somewhere. In the policy that was produced last week, which has been established, it was 0.8. Between 0.8 and 1.6 hectares of land per megawatt. Per megawatt, okay. Oh, so it's, yeah, if, you take, so, if you take the middle number, it's yeah. slightly over a hectare. So I think, yeah, I mean, if you're looking, if you're looking at you know, some of the large schemes that are being brought forward in, or being, you know, the applications are submitted up in Lincolnshire, for example, at the moment, you know, they sort of range between 500 to 1,000 hectares, depending on, you know, what megawatt wattage they're, they're looking for. Pretty hefty chunks of land. Well, yes, yes, I suppose you could say that. (laughs) You could say that. Yeah, we've got to be careful not to get to the crux too early, but the one point you made, Ian, I think it's more Mm. is this whole thing of it's the type of agricultural land. Yeah, I think so. And again, the way the planning system deals with impacts on agricultural land and, I mean, and food security, I think. It's probably right to say that the planning system deals with seeking to protect the best, you know, the highest, higher quality agricultural land. Okay. You know, I know many arguments are put forward that, you know, lower quality agricultural land can be productive. But from the, the, in terms of the way the planning system operates, what it deals with is protecting what termed best and most versatile agricultural land. So, you know, this be familiar with the agricultural land grading system of grade one, yeah. two, three, A, three, B. Form 5, 1, 2, and 3A 
are best and most versatile. Three B and higher are lower grade, are, are considered to be, you know, lower grade. Not low grade, but not best and most versatile, yeah. if you see what I mean. Yeah, so I that, do, yeah. that's the sort of the d- distinction the planning system makes. And all of the policies with it, you know, throughout all the national policy statements and the local plans will reflect that policy that development when it comes forward you know whether it's residential or solar or commercial or whatever you must seek to avoid developing on best and most versatile agricultural land so okay there's a principle under those sort of that planning regime i talked about under 50 megawatts the town and country planning act of you know seeking to do development on previously developed land first you know, is that like brownfield? Well, brown, brownfield, yeah. you know, in urban areas, yeah. you know. And, and But that's probably more relevant to residential, commercial, you know, development. It is right to say that any planning application you put forward for relatively significant-sized solar schemes, so if you're getting up into 30, 40 megawatts and, or, you, or you're over and above the 50, you are going to need to justify why can't you do this scheme on rooftops, why can't you do it on brownfield uh, land? Yeah. If you can't, then why are you, you know, if you're going to be taking up some best and most versatile agricultural land, will justify why you need to do that. Now, a lot of the schemes we see have a range of the amount of, of BMV in them. So, for example, the Longfield scheme that was approved earlier this year, about 35% of it was BMV. Okay, so good land. Thirty-five percent of it was deemed to be, you know, the good quality land in Grade One, Two, or Three A, or whatever it was. Right. But I mean, I know there are schemes, you know, some of the projects that I've been involved in where the BMV amounts might be five percent, fifteen, twenty percent. And if we look across decision making by often with planning applications under the Town and Country Planning Act is to look at sort of trends is maybe not to look at what local authorities are doing but what planning inspectors are doing when so when a planning application is refused by a council it can be appealed yeah and then the planning inspector at a national level will deal with the appeal okay and it's to look at the trends of how they are dealing with planning policies and interestingly you know some planning inspectors you do even get a variation in the weighting that planning inspectors place on BMV um, versus other benefits but more recently we've been starting to see greater weight being placed on the benefits of renewable energy over say 50% BMV or sites in Greenbelt now I mean I know Greenbelt's we don't have any green belt in Norfolk. We don't, but you know, round London, round round Oxford, round you know, certain oh, yeah, locations. Yeah, yeah. The green belt is a very sort of controversial, restrictive planning policy, and you know, some inspectors are taking a view that they will allow a, a solar scheme in green belt because of the benefits of the renewable energy generation that they take. So you're sort of seeing some of the you know some trends or inspectors placing quite a bit of weight on the need for renewable energy coming through with 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 these projects so this is interesting because obviously you know we you're right in norfolk there's lots of of good arable land but many of our farmers we know because they've been freely talking to us i said oh you know i've had this email i've had oh you know you could get solar on your land now I fully accept that's, you know, not you Mm. at all. But there there are companies there out there who are actively targeting farmers 
to get the land in order to then, and I'm sure as you've highlighted, there's so much to go through. You can't just go, yeah, there's my field, go on, stick a load of solar panels up, I don't mm. mind. The background and all the work that goes into it is, is enormous, and I'm starting to get a feel for that now. But the other thing I'm getting from you, Ian, is that there is this, and this ties in with some of the other podcasts we've done, there is this line from government via policy that they will look favourably at, say, a solar project on agricultural land. Yeah, I, but I, I think, I suppose the difficulty we we sort of wrestle with planning is that it has this it seeks to protect the best agricultural land as opposed to taking into account you must go away and assess the the impact of this proposal on food on national food security if you see what i mean okay so you know there there is a distinction that's how the system works and that's what we've got and quite interestingly that's what's being brought forward in the policy that was adopted last week so that is going to remain i think i think probably what's worth saying is that government have committed to reviewing those policies so the one that was adopted last week reviewing them every five years okay so i think that's probably a positive thing well it should be should should have been happening anyway because you do regularly need to you know new technologies come forward or new trends in development come forward and keeping policy up to date is the most important thing to do to sort of stick with that to be able to communicate to local communities what may be going on in you know in their patch or what's important from a national perspective as well as a local perspective the way i've seen planning inspectors deal with the food security issue because we do we do see this on large-scale solar schemes and small below 50 megawatt solar schemes local communities and and members of planning committees you know when the application's going to committee talking about concerns of the impact of this particular solar farm on national food security there is no requirement within a planning application to assess the impact on national food security but there's no requirement to do it. How you can therefore make decisions, you know, make a decision based on a planning yeah. decision based on concerns over food security is you're very likely to lose your planning appeal if that's what you've done as a council and made that decision. So I'm not saying it's disregarded in the planning system. I think the policy that was adopted last week, you can sort of see a statement in there that refers back to the British energy security strategy, which was produced in, in March this year. And that talks about government is of the view that we can deliver this energy through solar or other renewable projects alongside maintaining national food security. There is a food security strategy out, but I believe that was, when was that, 2021? 2021, you know, a couple of years ago, there's been quite a lot going on, hasn't there? So, I mean, I don't want to be too cynical about, about this, but I think... I get it. The introduction of large-scale solar schemes into rural areas is a big change for you know local communities and you know people who may you know see them. Personally, I think is really the only issue with them is that you can see. Okay. We'll come to talk about the other impacts in a minute, but I do believe that it is used by a lot of objector groups as an issue to try to oppose solar farms. Oh, what, they're using the food security? The the, the food security thing. The problem is, you know, whatever we think of the government of the day, they do tend to produce policies based on evidence, you know, and so if there's evidence of a massive issue with food security, then I'm sure something would be done about it. I'm no food security expert, (laughs) but I understand that, you know, it's been relatively stable, 
yeah. for the last few years, our food security situation. What do we do? We grow 60% of our own stuff, do we, and import yeah, the rest? Yeah, yeah, we're about that. Import, yeah. Export a little bit of it, yeah, and yeah. I think it's quite... I think the way probably planning, examining authorities for those large-scale projects are looking at the food security issue in a planning context is because we have this BMV approach to it. Yeah, best and most versatile. Best and most versatile agricultural land. You must seek to avoid using that as a reminder of what the policy is. Let's take Lincolnshire for an example. Yeah. Poor old Lincolnshire (laughs) has had quite a lot of large-scale solar applications submitted, all in the public domain, all of these applications. I think there's about 12 DCO applications in at the moment at various stages of the process. And I think the way government or examining authorities are looking at the impact of those in a particular you know, area is to say to applicants, you've got to assess the cumulative impacts of development. Okay. So the reality is, let's take the visual impacts of, say, three or four solar schemes. All close together. You know, you know there is the potential for there to be cumulative visual impacts. However, if you've got the other six or eight solar schemes are 50 miles away, still within Lincolnshire or 50 miles away, there is unlikely to be a cumulative visual impact because of the distance. The issue, I think, that we've seen with the ones in Lincolnshire is examining authorities asking for the impact on agricultural land use, best and most versatile. Mm. Take into account those 12 applications, well, what is the likely impact? And there's quite an interesting bit of evidence that's been put into one of the examinations up in Lincolnshire, which it looks at, those 12 solar schemes, it also looks at all the other solar schemes and it looks at how much BMV land will be taken up by all of those projects okay. compared to how much BMV land there is across the whole of Lincolnshire. And it also looks at how much BMV land will be taken up temporarily. Now, we can argue whether a solar scheme is temporary or not, but they last for 40 years and then they're decommissioned and they're gone and their land is to be returned to agricultural use. Okay, so 40 years. That's generally, although we're now seeing some applications coming through for 60 years. But, I mean, so that's another matter. And, of course, the whole debate around what's temporary and what's permanent, it's sort of, you know, that flows backwards and forwards in terms of those who oppose and those who support. But ultimately... You only get very, very small amounts of permanent loss of land from solar schemes because the majority of it you return to agricultural use. You might get less tracks across the field, they might remain, or there might be a little bit of hard standing where you've got, you know, substations that might remain. But in terms of the land that can go back to agricultural use is is the majority of it. And if you know, but that, after 40 years. But after 40 years. Yeah. So that's one way in which government is looking at this, you know, looking yeah. or d- determining authorities are looking at this. They have to take a long-term view over, over stuff, energy generally. Energy strategy, Both yeah, energy yeah. And, 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 and food, food, yeah, and food yeah. security. Got to take that long-term view. So, and I think in the Longfield Solar Scheme example as well, which is the one down in Essex, there was a similar approach taken where the, in, the inspector concluded that, you know, based on the amount of BMV land that was going to be lost temporarily and permanently, it was a very small amount across the whole of the county. And therefore, whilst it was a negative aspect of the development, it was outweighed by the positive aspects of it, as in, the re- you know, the renewable energy. So this is, yeah. this is sort of how, you know, decision-making is working. And I think when I say next year will be quite 
maybe 2024, there should be quite a few decisions coming through, particularly up in Lincolnshire and then 2025 as well, because there's applications sort of in at different stages, then that's how it's working. And I think the review every five years of those policies to see then whether, well, is there, yeah, are they having an impact? Is it actually affecting our food security? Yeah. So food security needs to be, yeah, strategy should be updated. I think as long as things are reviewed and kept under review and they're being considered, then both of these things can potentially work together. But I think I sort of understand a lot of the issues are around introducing solar farms into rural locations and it's a change for local communities. So Yeah, um, you know, it is interesting, Ian. The other aspect of you know, and it's very interesting that you're yes, you've highlighted food security and it is a key aspect and the whole thing of oh, is it permanent, is it temporary? Well, yeah, 40 years feels like a bloody long time. But, you know, I suppose that's part of it. From our industry point of view, yes, we are seeing more land going to other uses, be it solar. We had a podcast recently where we discussed farms being sold and becoming carbon banks. So there are these changes happening Mm. in UK agriculture, and they seem to be happening quite quickly, you know, your comments of, yes, you know, back in 2008, there were good subsidies available for solar. And I remember seeing plenty of large scale solar farms go. And then it seemed to go quiet where we saw lots. There's quite a few on the, the A11 or A14. Mm. And when you go down there, you can see it. Yeah. They're quite old because I remember those being built. And now we're seeing a revival as the materials get cheaper and the government is keen to secure energy. And I get that. Yeah, I think it's the food security that I think a lot of people will be looking at and saying, crikey, hang on a minute. Yeah. But um, I agree, yeah. it's not just solar. There, well, that, yeah. There are other th- other things happening to land, certainly in and around Norfolk and other areas of the country where, and we're aware of this, huge investment firms have gone in and gone, well, okay, look, we'll buy that farm and we'll just make the whole thing a large flower farm you know, mm. it'll grow mm. flowers it's a carbon sink done and then that lands out of production i guess i don't need to because i'm a you know a planner and i'm not an expert in you know agronomy or you know the agricultural sector but i think you know my understanding is that there are other factors i mean i think if we've got problems in you know that sector at the moment but we haven't actually got any functioning major solar schemes at the moment then it can't be solar that's the problem it's i think it's the perceived future you know concern over food security you know yeah. and that seven, that jump to 70 gigawatts over a period of time how will that impact upon other things that are going on in the countryside as well as other you know government policy and mm. you know when we were part of the eu what how did those policies affect us or not you know in, in terms of food production there are a, a range of factors all i can really say is how it works in the system at the moment yeah difficult to crystal ball gaze as to whether you know as to how things may change in in the future on this particular aspect it sort of feels like in that policy that was produced last week there is a bit of an emphasis on just sort of creeping in and again this will be interesting to see how those examining authorities in those applications that are determined next year will consider this but there seems to be a you know, a hint of, you know, making sure that when a, you know, solar schemes are looking at the coexistence of the solar scheme, either agricultural use or other energy uses, so the coexistence of different uses together within the solar farm. Okay. So, you know, whether that, you know, perhaps onshore wind or whatever, I mean, onshore wind's still got difficulties in, in planning policy terms, but 
I think more the agricultural thing is quite relevant. I mean, you know, advocates of the solar, of solar, you know, which I which I obviously am because, you know, yeah. I support it and, I, you know, I, I sort of go out there and stand up in front of local communities and, and defend it. But And I know this has not got highly productive arable land. You turn it to solar and then you great, put some sheep underneath it. It's a very different thing to what you were doing previously. And I suspect, yeah. you know, you guys look at that and go, OK, come on. But that is an aspect of the proponents of solar will we'll put forward. I think whilst it it's not apparent in the industry at the moment, there is, we sort of hear from other places the issue of whether or not you actually create more land between or you retain more land between the solar panels but okay so the, they're the widely spaced so they're widely spaced so yeah you can potentially and height um, can anything yeah so you can potentially go between the panels and then there is i think there are some schemes on the continent where they've actually raised the panels to a height so that they can farm underneath them so but you know i think that will take some you know time yeah. before that you know because there will be cost implications it's just a different way of of doing things they probably start on a small scale and then some of those, you know, some of those things may happen. But I think at the moment, if you've got 5% BMV in your solar scheme, I think you're pro- probably likely to get it approved. I wouldn't be too concerned. If you're getting up towards 35, 40, 50, then, you, you know, maybe that's difficult. But look, there are schemes out there with, you know, up to 100% BMV in them But that I've heard of. I've been involved in schemes where, you know, developers do work quite hard to design out the BMV from the schemes but sometimes you get very small portions that are surrounded by okay. grade 3b or 4 or whatever that is pointless in keeping that small piece in for agricultural use because you you know you've surrounded you've it surrounded it or yeah. it's just not practical to, to do so or but there are certainly some big schemes i've been involved in where the, the bmv has been particularly you know high and those have been taken out of the scheme by the developer because they you know they're responding to the concerns of the policy and and local communities yeah i mean the other aspect and of course it's each it's always each case on its merits but quite a lot of the you know schemes that i've come across the solar farm element within the farming estate has just been part of it okay one part of the larger farming estate you know and from which the landowner generates an income to invest in the wider estate help them keep Product produced to farm on the wider estate. Yeah, farmers are resourceful. They do residential development. They do solar. They do lots of things on their estates. You know, I'm sure there are probably landowners who've got one big field, and if the whole thing goes for solar, then of course that that's not relevant, is it? But you know, it can help to make a farm estate more viable. Yeah. Uh, So there are, you know, there's there's always devil in the detail, (laughs) and what the proponents of you know, solar do say, and, and I think this is probably in a DEFRA report, is that the biggest threat to agriculture is climate change, isn't it? Yeah? Yes, it no? is. <laughs> hey? Is it or isn't it? I don't know. I mean, I, I have seen that in DEFRA's think, own report. Yeah. So I, I, the, the irony, isn't it, isn't it, you know, that solar, you know, I think it's quite well established that it and the move to, you know, renewable energy will, you know, help with climate change. But... <laughs> We're going to wrap it up there. But what I will say on that point Mm. is, yes, you're right. Climate change is a bigger threat. But as we've seen this year, actually, this coming harvest, Harvest 24, widely known, the UK is probably going to be 11 million tonnes, which we haven't seen since 2012. A lot of it has been because of all the heavy rain. Mm. It's very hard to come back from that lower production if land 
is being used for other things. Mm. If you've mm. got access to more land, you can recover more quickly and get things back to normal. Mm. But as the land bank reduces, and this isn't, you know, your defence of solar is very good. <laughs> and I think, you know, and I think we'll have learnt a lot. We have learnt a lot because I, it's a lot harder than you think. But, you know, having a land bank that's tied up for 40 years in solar presents challenges. Yeah. I, no, I, I agree. And I think it's right to make sure these things are properly kept under review regularly. Yeah. yeah. Regularly. And, and, you know, if government's going to commit to reviewing these policies that are very supportive of 70 gigawatts by, you know, whatever, and, and the policy that was produced last week, you know, if they're going to commit to reviewing every five years, then they, they should do that. And we just need to move forward on a sort of an evidential basis. I think, you know, you're looking at a potential scenario there. I'm not saying it's wrong, but, it you know, which could well happen. So to push it through the right sort of evidential process to inform policymaking. I think what we sort of get quite a lot of is um, not the right thing, but I think it's more used, it is being used more often, food security, as a way to try and oppose something that people, they just don't like what's what's coming forward. So Okay. But, All right. Yeah. Ian, thank you for that. Covered a lot, but there's some very good stats in there, especially the you know the megawatt hectares, the fact that food security is mentioned in these, which is you know, important, but very good. Thanks for coming in, and I, we really yeah. appreciate it. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. Hope that was helpful. Okay. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get updates on new episodes and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We are at Dewing Grain. Alternatively, you can call us on 01263 731 550 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. 